0: This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, astrobiologist Lucianne Walkowitz on the ethics of space exploration.
1: A lot of the ideas that are out there about people going to space is not actually about scientific exploration, it's about exploitation of other planets. You don't want to make space into a theater of war because it is not a confined space, it's something that really affects all nations, whether they are involved in a particular conflict or not. What's the long-term plan there? You sell all your earthly possessions and then Elon Musk is in charge of your survival? That doesn't really seem like a great (laughs) plan (laughs) to me.
0: Lucia Walkowitz, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to see you again. Uh, We met a few years ago in Washington, D.C., in the before times. Maybe it was more than a few years ago uh, at a fascinating panel where we were talking about the the pros and cons of uh, search for an intellectual or not intellectual <laughs> intelligent life in the universe <laughs> i 'm sounding very intellectual today and it was a fascinating conversation that introduced me to your work and and to the kinds of things that you do. You are an astronomer now at the Adler planetarium in Chicago and the founder of a group called the just space Alliance uh, and you you do something very interesting you are trained as an astronomer, but you are also studying. The intersection of science and space exploration and society, and something that you talk about a lot and write a lot about is what you call the ethics of space exploration. So we'll get into all kinds of aspects of your career, but I want to start with with that question. When you think about the ethics of space exploration, which I don't think is something that really comes to mind for people when they think about, you know, adventure and going out into the cosmos and pushing into the frontier, what does that mean, the ethics of space exploration?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I often encounter that that people think it sort of has like one meaning, like, you know, there's maybe a few ways in which we have to think about uh, ethics in space and that's it. But really, um, the ethics or what I often call the social impacts of space exploration intersects with issues that we deal with on Earth in every way that you can imagine. So it really depends um, on what you're talking about. So for example, to get, make this a little bit more concrete, um, when we send spacecraft like robotic spacecraft to other worlds, uh, one of the obvious ways that ethical questions come up is how well we clean those spacecraft to uh, protect the environments of other planets. Now, there's, uh, there's sort of scientific, straightforward, technical motivations for doing that, too, in that if you want to detect life on Mars, you don't want to bring Earth life there and then detect that <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because
1: then you've, you've ruined your experiment, right? Um, but you can easily see how the ways that we think about contaminating other planets um, has a lot of parallels with the ways that we think about stewardship of the environment here on Earth. Um, to make things, you know, a little bit more complicated, uh, oftentimes these ethical questions come up when we talk about humans going into space. So, to extend that idea about, you know, what is right or wrong to do with an environment like Mars, a lot of times you see in science fiction or even discussions of uh, humanity's future in space. Uh, this idea that you might be able to transform the environment of Mars to be more like Earth, um, something called terraforming. Mm-hmm. And then you get into questions about what our rights are to an environment that isn't uh, a place that humans currently live. And, um, you know, whether life exists there or has existed in the past, you know, what what is actually sort of um, ethically acceptable to us about what we might do to another planet's environment. Um, Because, you know, if, if trace life does exist on Mars today, um, you know, we might change it to be better for humans and that might make it worse for life on Mars. Mm -hmm. Um, In which case you can ask questions like, is it okay if humans wanted to live on Mars and life exists in some form in, you know, these underground aquifers that we think might exist can you sterilize the water that you want to drink? Um, is that to make it possible for humans to drink it? Is, is that okay? And then to make it even more complicated, when you talk about humans going into space, uh, there's a lot of intersections with medical ethics. Um, you know, when we do experiments with humans here on earth, uh, the thing that is uh, paramount above all things is having consent, right? Informed mm-hmm. consent. But we don't actually know what happens to human health and the human body in longer distance, longer term space travel. You know, humans have really just kind of orbited the earth and then gone to the moon a couple of times. <laughs> right. So, you know, you can't actually completely inform someone about what is going to happen to them. And for example, if they change their mind, once they get to Mars or on the way uh, you can't really, you know, turn that ship around (laughs) easily and and come right home. So unlike a medical experiment on earth where you can say, you know, I am not okay with these risks or these, you know, effects, side effects. Now um, I'm going to go home. you, You can't actually do that if you are traveling through space. So Um, Whether it's humans going to space or whether it is, you know, life that might exist on other worlds out there and our responsibilities to it, or even whether it's just what our rights are about, um, you know, transforming environments for the better or the worse, uh, it really has a a pretty big, um, there's a pretty big scope to the ethics of space exploration.
0: And are these conversations that tend to take place kind of at the table, as it were, as missions are being planned or, um, uh, you know, it kind of uh, plans are being formulated for where we want to go in five, 10 years. Like, where does this kind of ethical discussion come into the, the charting out of various missions?
1: So for the most part, it doesn't. Um, The uh, example I gave of how well we clean spacecraft um, is the one place in which it comes into the technical planning of missions. So um, that sort of field is called planetary protection, and it comes from one of the pieces of the Outer Space Treaty, which is a document that was created back in the late 60s. And kind of sets out the principles for uh, space exploration and how we explore space and, you know, also sort of the do's and don'ts of like what is allowed in space as far as um, behavior of, of nations or people that go to space. So planetary protection um, says that, you know, number one, you can't contaminate other worlds. And number two, you can't bring back stuff that might contaminate the biosphere of Earth. Right. Mm-hmm. Um But the way that this plays out in the planning of missions is that there are these different categories of planetary protection that different worlds are subject to um, and that create very different specifications, technical specifications about... Um, how much, you know, earth gunk for lack of a better word is allowed to be on your space robot. Mm. Um, and that includes whether, you know, you're going to an environment like the moon that we don't think sustains life, um, in any form or whether you're going to somewhere that is potentially biologically sensitive, like Mars. Um, and it also counts for whether you're going to fly by a world in the solar system, too, because there's always the chance that you might crash. And, right. you know, planetary protection says if you crash, it better be hard enough to burn up <laughs> everything on impact. Um, but, you know, these larger questions, particularly um, questions uh, that I would call the sort of more far flung images that are out there about like humans living or, you know, creating even cities on other planets, um, a lot of that ethical territory doesn't really come into mission planning. So there's some basic medical consent um, that you know astronauts agree to, uh, but it's not really clear how that might evolve for people living and working for longer periods in space. And all you have to really do is look at the labor environment of Earth <laughs> to pretty quickly see that some of those farther flung ideas about people working, for example, um, on Mars or the moon, uh, can can pretty quickly get you into uh, what are straightforward labor violations. Um, but of course, you know, the people that want to motivate you to go to other planets often don't want to bring that up. Um, right. Because folks like Musk and Bezos, for example, have really abysmal labor records here on Earth in their other companies, and so they they prefer you just pay attention to the fancy space graphics and not yeah. to you know what it's like to be in an Amazon warehouse, for example.
0: It it does make me think that as it's, it's you know as we talk about um, uh, a future in which you know humans might be colonizing Mars or they might be colonizing the Moon, and there's even plans maybe for putting a lunar base uh, up there in the near future. We do think about what I think of as like the more romantic ideas, right? It's exploration and we're out there and we're doing a thing for the first thing. And we don't kind of take that next step of like the nitty gritty of like, what is day-to-day living going to be like, you know, on these planets? And as I'm hearing you talk about things like, you know, informed consent, I think we just have an assumption that like, if you're lucky enough to be an astronaut, you'll put up with anything. But that doesn't really get to the idea, does it, about how we would actually form societies in these places? So where does then the discussion about kind of ethics butt up against, you know, maybe like raw politics? Like I can imagine if, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk wanted to talk about building factories on other planets, they probably would want to replicate the practices that they have here. And so does, how do you kind of I mean, how how does the ethical conversation sort of try to overcome that? Because I, I imagine you're trying to create something of a more equitable uh, and, and and responsible kind of society when you talk about going to other planets where humans haven't lived.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I'll I'll start with um, with even just the wording. So, I uh, yeah, yeah please, that, that's. Super common when people talk about going to yeah. space, which is colonization, right? Mm. You know, we're gonna go mm-hmm. colonize Mars, we're going to build colonies on the moon. And I think that one of the things that we can look at sort of first and foremost is colonization as a descriptor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, here on Earth, I think a lot of the idea of um colonization of other planets um being sort of a romantic ideal, something that is informed by Adventure and exploration is actually a narrative about European colonization of this planet. (laughs) Right. Um, And it, I think, is a side effect of the fact that the sciences have actually been extremely inaccessible for, um, you know, people who are the direct descendants of European colonization's effects, Mm -hmm. for example, black and indigenous people, um, you know, people whose labor has traditionally been exploited. Um, So, for example, you can look at like migrant workers from the global south. Um, So, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, going out into space and colonization as being romantic a lot of that is a a descendant of like a white European outlook on what the effects of colonization actually were. Um, And, you know, if you want to talk with people about uh, what, you know, the future of, for example, something like the Outer Space Treaty is when industry becomes involved. So, you know, as an an analogy to, you know, like private companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin becoming involved in space exploration – all you need to know is that every treaty with indigenous people in North America has been broken. Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of treaties that the United States made with indigenous nations were all broken and they were broken by a cooperation of the colonizing nation's government and private industry who was interested in exploiting resources. So, you know, I think, um, A lot of times when people criticize the word colonization, um, the objection that I hear, right, is like, well, there's no people there. There's no people there. Um, Mm, But uh that, (laughs) I think, elides the fact that colonization is a um, uh, multi-factored activity and um, that it includes not only, you know, the, the environment or the land that, might be colonized, but it also involves people, including um, the transport and migration of people, which we saw right with chattel slavery or with, um, again, like migrant workers. So, you know, when I sort of look at um, the future of going into space, it's not so much that you don't want to use colonization as a word because the word itself is bad, um, it's that I don't want space exploration to be a process that is accurately described by the word colonization. Right. And I think that a lot of the visions that we are seeing from, for example, um, SpaceX, and you know, I, not to pick on SpaceX because a lot of the ideas that are out there are colonial um, from multiple companies, but SpaceX is sort of the the loudest, I would say. Um, a lot of the ideas that are out there about people going to space is not actually about scientific exploration. Um, it's not about learning about these other planets. It's about exploitation of other planets. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the ideas about, you know, opening up the moon, for example, for people conducting activities on its surface have been very much of the sort of private industry, um, you know, going and being able to exploit the moon and to turn um, space environments into another realm that is governed by capitalism. Um, so, you know, I think uh, it's a big challenge mm-hmm. <laughs> that folks who are interested in, uh, you know, perhaps a, a future that is not completely dominated by capitalist exploitation um, to think about how we might go into space in ways that are not that way. Um in part because we're always, when we talk about space, talking about what we want to build here on Earth. You know, space is this sort of projection screen in in which we sort of imagine our future, right? And um, those futures can be imagined in different ways by different people depending on what they imagine a good future for them on Earth is like. Mm-hmm. So, it you know, it doesn't surprise me that, for example... Um, And this is uh, something that was pointed out to be by Fred Sharman, who is uh, a professor of architecture who studies space environments. Um, You know, when you see like SpaceX's marketing graphics about like what a city on Mars looks like, they have, you know, this sort of time lapse with different pods that show you landing platforms for their spacecraft and then a city that grows up around it, it looks like L.A there's no <laughs> urban <pamphleting. laughs> you know it's just sprawl like none yeah. of the buildings make any sense um you know there's no common areas it's just like a bunch of weird random buildings sort of splattered around these landing ports right yeah. and that's that's like a very like libertarian and individualistic way of thinking about the future of Everything, not yeah. just the future on Mars, but the future of like what a good future looks like on Earth.
0: Sounds very Muskian, yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how much of what what we when we when we when the countries are we as societies take that how how you want talk about exploring space or you know. Settling space, putting humans out there to go do human things. How much of that is informed by thinking from the perspective of the military? I mean, I'm thinking about, obviously, early space exploration is very much it's NASA, but it's driven by the military. The the astronauts are pilots. They're coming out of a military culture. You know, we think about weapons in space. You know, I am sure I think during the Cold War, maybe there were thoughts about military bases on the moon. Does does military or security thinking inform a lot of how we think about space exploration?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that uh, from the very, very earliest days, um, space has always been, you know, people throw around the word Private-public partnership, right? Um, but the very earliest things in space were satellites for reconnaissance, right? That were built by not just the military, but you know the military contracting private companies um, and working with private companies to build the infrastructure to do surveillance from space. So, if you look at the um, the Outer Space Treaty, for example. Um, people tend to think of it be, as being very high-minded in that uh, you mentioned military bases on other planets, right? That's actually not uh, something that is allowed according to the Outer Space Treaty. Um, and there are uh, certain things like uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction are not um, permitted to be in space. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of smushy language in there yeah. <laughs> about, yeah. you know, whether um, you can have kind of military infrastructure of any kind, because, of course, you know, the Outer Space Treaty is from 1967, and early reconnaissance satellites were, I think the first one was launched in 1958, right? So the yeah. horse was, like, exceptionally out of the barn and in orbit <laughs> by then. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> So, you know, I think, um, one of the things we've seen in the last few years has been this sort of expansion of, um, military sphere of influence into space in a way that goes beyond, um, the presence of, you know, spy satellites, which, you know, are everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's, that's very much, you know, several decades long. Um, and, you know, I think that that has potential, uh, potential intersections with, uh, you know, things being built on the surface of other worlds as well, right? That, uh, you know, you, for example, are not, uh, if, you, if you make any kind of infrastructure on somewhere like the moon, um, you don't actually own the, like, moon itself. You don't own, you own your infrastructure, you own the things that you build, but according to the Outer Space Treaty, you don't actually own that patch of the moon, but you could easily see somebody saying, well, we're setting up this military perimeter.
0: <laughs> I'm here, so um, I own it, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, but, you know, I think, uh, so for example, if we look at the founding of the Space Force um, over the past several years, uh, now a couple years um, in the in the past, um, you know, the the analogy that was made was to the formation of the Air Force around, mm. you know, World War II, right? Um which isn't actually a good historical analogy. Um, you know, the uh, The founding of the Air Force kind of came around because uh, there was the equivalent of that um, in the British military. And we didn't really, you know, militaries like to have the same number of, of people in the room <laughs> when they're representing their nation versus uh, the other nations, guys. Um and it was guys back in the, those days. Yeah. Uh, so the founding of the the Air Force sort of had a precedent um, in you know our immediate collaborating nation um, and also, I think, was significant because of the importance of air power around that time. Um, and I, I would be remiss not to say that I know a lot about this stuff because my father was actually uh, in the sort of early days of... The air Force. Um, he was quite a bit older, so if you're doing math, um, <laughs> he was he was uh, in his 20s, in the early 40s, um, and you know, wrote one of the first PhDs on jet propulsion, um, and you know, was a student of von Karman's, who was uh, very influential in, on uh, the scientific advising committee that you know really propelled air power and the development of like uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles forward, and so. Mm you know the the early history of the Air Force has a lot to do with the rise of air power in you know the earthly sphere now, the space force, on the other hand, I have always thought of as being just sort of another excuse to fund something in the military.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people because, have that feeling, yeah
1: yeah, because there actually isn't um sort of a good analogy for it, and it's also not immediately clear what this you know the the space force you know i think people have these like uh scientific uh or a sci-fi uh, ideas about what the military might look like in space where we imagine people sort of zipping around in, <laughs> in right. spaceships yeah and you know shooting at each other like in star wars um but you know really like that is not something that, that exists currently or that is likely to exist in the future. Um, right. And there are other aspects of, uh, you know, security that I think um, you don't actually need the military to, to keep track of. For example, um, orbital debris is something that is um, very, a very significant problem. Um, one that is being made worse by the launching of uh, these satellite mega constellations like Starlink mm. and, you know there are many many um people you know both uh in sort of academia and also in private industry who you know look at and monitor um space debris as a threat to security because you know it, space debris the, the tiniest thing in orbit is moving at velocities where an impact with you know some piece of infrastructure for example the international space station um could offset or, or could set off a very significant series of events, um, that might be really, uh, harmful to our future in space. So, you know, we rely on space for a lot of things now and you don't really want a, you know, cascade of orbital debris yeah. <laughs> to make sp- space inaccessible. Right. Um, And some of that is from what I would call sort of military action, like, uh, you know, blowing up your own um, satellite, for example, which uh, some nations have done um, to test anti-satellite. Yes, exactly. To test uh, anti-satellite weapons. Um, So, you know, it, it goes to show you that, like, actually, you don't need to have people zipping around in space to have, you know, military actions that are on the ground and that are governed by current wings of the military. So you know I think the the space force sort of got this um, got this boost in attention from people's misconceptions about what is actually necessary for security in space. Um, but yeah, I, you know space has always been a realm that the military operate in. Um, and I, I I guess my my primary objection to it is that space has also historically been a realm of peacekeeping. And if you look at the Outer Space Treaty and the ways that, uh, you know, space has been spoken about and uh, interacted with, it's always been a domain of peacekeeping um, since we've been going to space. And the more you militarize something, the more you make it into a theater of war. Mm -hmm. And, you know, conceptually speaking, um, you don't want to make space into a theater of war because it is not you know, a, a region that is, I mean, first of all, we don't want anywhere to be a theater of war, but also it is not a confined space. You know, it is, it is not the high seas, um, even though people use the high seas as an example. You know, it is not a, a piece of land. It's something that really affects all nations, whether they are involved in a particular conflict or not. So it's really beneficial, actually, for, for most people on Earth for space to remain a domain of peace and not a theater of war.
0: There's a lot of talk there. Well, there's often talk about exploring space. There's often a debate about whether we should be scaling back our space program and focusing more on issues here on Earth. But it does seem like there's momentum towards sending people back to the moon and kind of an ambition of eventually a a, a human mission to Mars. What are some of the, in your mind, some of the big Ethical questions that we need to be thinking about now as we're contemplating sending people to these you know nearby bodies and presumably you know thinking about leaving them there for some period of time and coming back and forth
1: yeah that's a that's a complicated question because there's a <laughs> lot of ways in which <laughs> um, ethics plays out as a as I mentioned earlier. Um, I think one of the very basic questions is about uh, planetary protection with the presence of human beings, you know, human beings, we are much more are like bacteria <laughs> than we are, um, our human cells, for example. Right. So, you know, when we um, go to space, we bring with us um, a real living system that mm-hmm. I think has uh, quite a, a potential to potentially do damage um, to places that are, you know, possibly places that we might find life in the universe. Um, and Mars is one of those places. And I think pretty quickly, if you're looking at sustaining human life on the surface of other worlds, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, Mars is a a very, very hostile environment. Um, and you know, terraforming uh you know this idea that we can turn mars into being more hospitable to earth first of all doesn't work
0: <laughs> um like, like not, bubble. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah yeah sorry um so there are ways of doing it that might you know take advantage of the environment like living in lava tubes or caves for example uh but It's difficult to sustain human life without interacting with the Martian environment in some way. And that might be something like, is it okay to sterilize the water if the water contains biota that are like your first sign of life on another planet beyond Earth, which would be a huge scientific discovery? I mean,
0: just (laughs) even like pause on that for a second, like the idea that we would be there and, you know have this question of well there's this water that has a foreign microbe that we've never seen that is as you say evidence of life on another planet and then it's like can we drink this and if we do what should we do with it i mean you immediately run up against these problems when you're trying to talk about sustaining life on another planet and one imagines that you know you would i would think say like like no don't kill it for crying out loud what are we talking about (laughs) but i mean but if you're going to put people there where are you going to get the water from
1: yeah. And, you know, I think that um, one of the things that, that worries me a lot about the private interests that are um, hoping to go do some of these things, uh, you know, I, I actually, I'll say that I I think the vast majority of those visions that are forwarded by like a SpaceX or a Blue Origin are ways to sort of like, you know, um, dangle the bright, shiny birdie, <laughs> You know, like here's here's these amazing um, graphics of, you know, my Martian base um, really hides like the reality of what it would probably go be like to go to space, um, especially if, for example, you had to sell all of your earthly property to afford, you know, to work in in Elon Musk's like Mars warehouse. (laughs) Pass, (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <Pass. laughs> but you know, expediency. Expediency is is really like kind of the governing principle behind a lot of those things. And, you know, is it okay to like kill the discovery of life on another world so that you can drink the water? Ethically, probably not. Like scientifically, I would be very upset as like a, a astrobiologist if that were to happen. Um, but for expediency's sake, you know, if your if your idea is that the the uh, survival of humans on the planet is the most important than, than maybe, um, you know, but I, I think uh, really when we start thinking about that, uh, it, it depends on whether you want to send large numbers of people, whether they are going to stay there for a long period of time, um, you know, what they're actually going to be uh, permitted to do on the surface. And also what are the potential benefits to human beings going to space I think is a is a really relevant question right because we can learn a lot about other worlds by sending robotic spacecraft and you know I I think sometimes there's a there's a tendency for me to sound like Debbie Downer when it comes to space <laughs> and humans particularly going to space but there are there are ways in which I can imagine human presence, Um, making more things possible. So when we explore the deep ocean here on earth, right, a lot of times we send robotic craft that are being operated, not in situ with, you know, like you don't necessarily have to have humans go down to the deep ocean, although they sometimes do. Um, But you can make more real time decisions if you can operate a robotic craft like locally. So you could imagine that having maybe a small crew of humans go to another world and like operate, you know, a probe that would preserve the environment and not create potential human contamination. Um, that might actually make it uh, easier and um, possible to do more complicated experiments on the surface of another planet. So I could see that there would be potentially some benefits there. Um, but you know that that's very different, right? Than let's build a city <laughs> on the surface of Mars. Right. And, you know, I also think that going to space is hard and it is also extremely dangerous. So you have to imagine that, uh, you know, unfortunately, things going wrong is kind of a a likely outcome. Right. And like, what's what's your plan for if people die on the surface of Mars? You know, accidents are something that happen when you're not planning for them to happen. (laughs) Yeah. So you can't plan for things to go perfectly because they probably won't.
0: When I think about, you know, movies like, you know, uh, The Martian and other movies about space exploration, often the central conflict is something goes badly wrong in space and how do we rescue people? So it's something it's clearly, you know, it exists in our imagination, and I suppose, has always been there when humans think about exploring, you know, myths about sea creatures on the seas before people cross the oceans. And it's fascinating to see all how that plays out. I wonder, you know, you talked about the, the robotic craft on Mars, and we obviously have this kind of, you know, amazing array of probes that we've put out there, and <clears throat> we've seen, you know, the pictures that they've sent back, which are just awe-inspiring, and sometimes you have to kind of sit there and pinch yourself and realize that you're looking at, you know, Mars and not, you know, the Southwest, because they look very similar sometimes. Do you think about the moment that might be when one of those probes, you know, cracks open a rock or finds the underground aquifer and we actually have evidence of life on another planet. Do you you think about that day and kind of what it's going to be like when you and the rest of humanity hears that news and what do we do with that information?
1: I do think about that a lot. Um, And, you know, I think um, some of this is informed that it, by in the fact that in the late 90s, we actually thought that that had happened. <laughs>
0: That's right. Yes. Tell that story. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, you know, in the late 90s, there was this discovery of, or this announcement of um, the discovery of possible, like, fossilized life in this Martian meteorite. Um, and this was huge news. I remember that I was, I was in high school and I was at the sort of very beginning of, of being curious about science. Um, I grew up in New York city and I was like doing this summer like high school student program at the New York Academy of Sciences um, where I was like working in a lab. And so we got to hear a talk about this and I remember being like super excited And of course, later on, unfortunately, it turned out to be a false alarm, you know, that the structures that were observed in this Martian meteorite um, can be produced through regular old geology and not biology, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Sad trombone. Um, So, you know, I think that a lot of times, uh, and this comes up a lot, right, with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is... There's this uh, this notion amongst, you know, astronomers and astrobiologists that like definitive signs of life beyond Earth is going to be this like soul rocking, huge moment for all of humanity. And honestly, it'll be probably a huge moment for some of humanity. Uh
0: uh uh (laughs) Um,
1: Like it would be a huge moment for me, for example, like I would be incredibly excited, like over the moon excited to use a very (laughs) apropos (laughs) phrase. Um, (laughs) and, And I think it would be hugely scientifically significant. However, um, you know I'm a person who does a lot of like science communication and speaks with people who are not scientists about science and specifically about space a lot. And what you have to realize is that you know a lot of people already think that there is life beyond Earth mm-hmm. and kind of take it as a given that there is life beyond Earth. So that and and those people I would say range hugely in scope. So, for example. A lot of people don't realize that um, funding uh, for SETI historically uh, has been. The search for extraterrestrial
0: intelligence, yeah.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, Funding for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, specifically using, for example, radio dishes to look for life signals that there's technologically advanced life out there sending messages. A lot of that has been championed in Congress by uh, senators and congressmen who are are Mormon because Mormons are, uh, excuse me, let me start that sentence over again. Um, Alien life beyond earth is canon in Mormonism. So you have folks who, for example, religiously believe that there is life beyond earth and that we should go and find it um you have folks who believe for example that ufo's uh you know unidentified flying objects are spacecraft that are visiting earth a huge mm-hmm. number of people in the united states believe that and so you know and then there's the folks who are sort of i would say like vanilla believers in aliens <laughs> who are just like oh yeah well obviously like there's got to be life out there somewhere um and and those so who think they've lot, been visited by them yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so you know i would say that the sort of belief that there um, is life beyond earth, you know, to scientists is very, very important to find proof of these things and then not just like proof one way or the other, like, you know, science is never this binary yes or no question. It's also, you know, what can a discovery um, make for us in the, in the way of future interesting questions. So like, if you found that there were, um, you know, biota of some sort, you know, say, Uh, bacteria, you know, viruses, tardigrades, you know, microscopic animals um, on, you know, Mars in some form, the immediate question would be like, let's study it. Let's figure out whether there was perhaps an independent origin of life on Earth, or is this life related to us in some way? Because we know that, for example, we find chips of Mars in the form of Martian meteorites here on Earth. So we know that the planets exchange um, material, So, you know, are they cousins? Are they completely different? You know, what can that teach us about the rise and origin and evolution of life in general? Those are all the questions that would would come up immediately, I think, um, for people who are curious about life. And, you know, I think broader beyond scientists, um, you know, what we we call sort of <laughs> misleadingly the general public, which is a wide variety of people. Yeah might have some of those questions too, but some people might actually just be like, well, yeah, I I know. <laughs>
0: right. Of course there is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, actually, of course the, there yeah. is. Like, is. Didn't we already know that?
0: <laughs> right. It's a good segue to talking to some of the things that we discussed when you and I first met a few years ago about the questions and even the ethics around the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Uh, fun fact, by the way, if people have seen the movie Contact, which of course is all about... Jodie Foster playing this scientist who detects a signal uh, of intelligent life in the universe. The clip in that movie where President Clinton is seen commenting on the contact is actually real footage from when he commented on the meteorite back in the 90s, <laughs> which is like sort of like, just yeah. like a fun little thing. Was, they, they, they pulled it out and they just sort of repurposed it. Um, but let's talk about this because, you know, w- one of the things that came up in, in our discussion a couple of years ago was the the kind of the immediate question uh and then we'll get maybe to the ethical ones of just the security issues the you know if if we think there are if there is extraterrestrial life out there in the universe uh and let's say we make contact with it is there a risk of alerting some other you know life form in the galaxy as it were that we are here and that we might be vulnerable or that we might be ripe for, you know, to use another word, colonization or or so, or, or uh, destruction. I mean, how do these kind of fact, these questions play in 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 the scientific discussion uh, when we're talking about searching for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence out there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that uh, very famously, a number of sort of high profile scientists. Um, I think Stephen Hawking was one of these. Have said things like, "Oh, absolutely, we should not broadcast our presence um, out into space in the form uh, of any kind of signal that would indicate, right, that we possess technology or that would invite contact from another, um, you know, alien species of some sort, because it would present a huge risk to us, right? Any, uh, the idea being that any um, intelligence that was smart enough to receive and interpret our signal." would also have the ability to travel here and, you know, like, <laughs> basically exploit uh, Earth and human beings um, for their resources. You know, uh, to, to bring this back to our, our conversation about colonization, I think a lot of those fears are actually born of sort of an internalized knowledge mm, that uh, yep. colonization on Earth was an exploitative and extractive uh uh, form of genocide essentially. Yeah. And so a lot of those, I think, reflect, um, white European descended people's fears that colonization might be del- uh, delivered to them as well. <laughs> we, did it, we, we did it to others. people,
0: people, other people, we know they might do it to us. Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. And so it's projected fear out onto, you know, an intelligence that might exist out in the cosmos somewhere. I often like to point out that a very technologically advanced intelligence that not only has the ability to receive and interpret a signal that we send, but also, you know, if they had the ability to travel across um, cosmic distances, first of all, uh, you know, the earth is not entirely a quiet place. Um, you know, we, we do have stray radio signals and we actually are more quiet than we were back in the fifties, for example, because we mm. use fiber fire optics for a lot of things now, uh-huh. but But probably um, they would already have the ability to detect us whether we broadcast a signal or not. Right. And if we did, you know, for example, uh, broadcast our existence and attract their attention um, via that, they also might have, right, uh, answers to some of our most pressing existential questions like, how do you sustain your species long enough to actually be able to spend resources on things like leaving and going out into space. You know, how do you steward your planet to the point that you don't ruin it with climate change? You know, how do you um, address diseases of aging, right? Things that have become big concerns for human beings as our lifespans have increased, like cancer, heart disease, etc they might actually have answers to some of those things. (laughs) And so, you know, while I think there is, there's a risk, there's a, it's, it's very difficult to calculate what that risk would be, and whether the benefits that might be possible as a result of contact would, you know, potentially outweigh the negative impacts. Um, And, you know, honestly, we don't really have any idea about what another intelligence would choose to do, uh, you know, we can't even communicate with dolphins. (laughs) you know, we have all of these open questions um, about what life in the universe might do or not. And we have only one uh, example of what, you know, humans do and humans do a lot of different things.
0: (laughs) One of the things that you opened my eyes to in the conversation that we'd had earlier was, The question of if we are going to broadcast, you know, our presence into, you know, the cosmos. And we did this with, you know, with the Voyager probe, you know, famously putting the golden disc, the record on this spacecraft that was kind of trying to say, here we are, the people of Earth, these, you know, are the kinds of things that we've done in our history. And we shoot it out into space like a message in a bottle. You raise these questions of like, well, who gets to say what the message is? Like, who gets to decide how you talk about Earth? What representation of Earth do you put out there? And it's basically an ungoverned space. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if I wanted to just as a private person go out and start finding an antenna that was big enough and just firing off messages, you know, into space, you know, I could tell all kinds of stories about Earth that might not be remotely representative of of what it's like to actually live here and who we are as a species and how do you even capture that? So, So... Talk a little bit about that, of this question around if we're searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, like who gets to be the one to make the contact and who gets to tell the story when you make the contact, if, if, if that happens?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, is really all about receiving signals that we might find from another intelligence broadcasting somehow out into space. And that could be radio signals. It could be laser pulses that you would detect in like visible light or infrared light. And, you know, we would hope that if we detected something like that, that it might contain a coded message. Um, but also it might not, it it might just be sort of an accident um, that we detect another, uh, another civilization out there. Um, but there is also this idea of METI or messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. And there are a couple of uh, groups and, and many people historically who have talked about per, perhaps sending messages out into space, and I think then it gets very complicated very fast, right? Because you you do need to have, for example, like a high enough <laughs> powered transmitter, um, which kind of limits your access. You know, it's probably not something that you can do in your backyard easily. Yeah, uh, but it it can be done relatively straightforwardly by small groups of people who may or may not have anything to do with speaking for Earth. And, you know, SETI itself, the actual like effort to detect signals from beyond our planet is a very international effort. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of um, ways in which the SETI community of researchers intersects with astronomy, which is also a very international effort more broadly. And so, you know, I would say that there's a lot of conversation about what we should do and and not just scientists who are, you know, natural science or physical science or biological science, but also social scientists. Um, you know, one of whom is Catherine Denning, who has done a huge amount of work um on this issue and is an anthropologist and has a lot of things to offer <laughs> her expertise being, um, you know, very much situated here on earth, but applied to SETI, you know, there's a lot of conversations about like what we would do if contact were to happen, um, because it might be that the the person or people who receive such a signal would be a very small number of people, you know, whoever's using the telescope that night. But Medi, on the other hand, um, is, I think, really potentially risky. Uh, I think this is maybe actually the the only thing that me and Elon Musk agree on. (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) We were both signatories of a statement about a decade ago saying to not send signals out into space, that that it should be something that is an international effort if it happens. Um, that it should be something where the message is, you know, broadly agreed upon, and the decision mm-hmm. to send that message is broadly agreed upon. All of which are extremely tall orders. Like I'm, you know, I don't have any illusions about that. Yeah. But you know, it is something with significant potential outcomes that you perhaps don't want a group of five people, for example, to be in charge of speaking for the entire planet, right? Especially because the people that have access to things like large radio dishes tend to be <laughs> very inequitable um, and really don't speak for, uh, for the entire planet in any sense, even, you know, like, what should we have for dinner kinds of earthly realm <laughs> questions. right? right. Um, yeah. So, but I, I don't think that necessarily um, it makes any sense to think that like, you know, another intelligence is going to come here and like exploit us when we really could learn quite a lot from, from them. Maybe, who knows?
0: Yeah. I kind of think about, you know, you mentioned like the idea that they could come here and teach us things about how to become more evolved or, you know, one of my favorite movies, regardless of whether it's a sci-fi movie is arrival. And I love the idea of, you know, the aliens who are coming here to give us a gift if we can figure out how to use it. And of course, it becomes this new ability to see through space and time. So there's, you know, it doesn't all have to be, you know, battlefield earth and they've come here to enslave us and all the rest of it.
1: Absolutely. And I, I loved Arrival. I think Arrival yeah. is perhaps my, um, it's up there with contact for my favorite depiction of what, you know, alien contact could look like especially because it does represent, I think, very well, the variety of different reactions that people have, right? Like yes. there's the scientists are depicted, Um, you know, you have like people in the military and all of these different ways in which people interpret the presence of these alien craft that come to the surface in this movie. And I really think it's a, um a, a very, you know, potential, I mean, you can't say it's accurate because it hasn't happened yet. Right. But I think it's a very beautiful illustration of um, the myriad ways in which something like that could go.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I love about the movie and to just geek out about it for a second is I love that the idea behind how Amy Adams's character ultimately solves the challenge she's clearly she's absorbing this language of these aliens and she can now s- realizes that she can see through space and time as she breaks through to the chinese general who seems to be threatening to blow up the whole enterprise by saying something personal to him so it's like it has to, like he has to understand something personally meaningful to see like the bigger picture and there's, it's just a very interesting movie of the way that it plays with what people's reactions would be and you could easily understand you know, that if you were a general charged with protecting a country and you're like, we've just decided that these are hostile craft and you know what? We're 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 cutting off the communication, we're defending ourselves. And I love the idea that there are just so many ways that it almost goes wrong. Uh, and ultimately in the end it's it's a great ending. But uh, I like that it didn't just stick to this sort of one, you know, like the Independence Day model, which don't get me wrong, I like Independence Day. I think it's a fun movie. But- <laughs> <laughs> um you mentioned uh, uh, growing up in New York City uh, and 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 doing programs around astronomy. Did you always know you wanted to be an astronomer from a young age?
1: No, actually, not at all. Um, you know, I grew up uh, mostly in New York. I lived for a little while in L.A. And um, I really wanted to be uh, sort of the first science thing that I wanted to be was a marine biologist, uh-huh. um, which I, I think is like a very like 90s. Thing. It's, yeah. It seems like a lot of yeah. people really I want to like be a feel, a marine yeah. biologists.
0: Um, I feel that. I feel that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and actually, I, I a little bit. This is a bit of an aside, but I a little bit got to fulfill that dream a couple of years ago because I co-authored a paper on um, whale strandings in response to solar activity.
0: <gasps> oh, interesting. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you know, back in the day, I think the first science thing I wanted to be was this marine biology idea. Mm but I actually grew up wanting to be an artist. Um, mm. And one of my first, first things that I wanted to be was a comic book artist. Oh. And, you know, I think the um, the intertwining of science and art has been kind of a theme for me. Um, mm. Once I got to high school, I uh, mostly did painting. Um, so I, I drew comics for a while in junior high and then I moved on to painting. um, And at the time, I was also very interested in my physics classes and my chemistry classes. And I really was like, well, I'd really like to combine these somehow. Um, And in my family, it was like considered very unacceptable to go to art school. um, And I was kind of under a lot of pressure to choose science instead, which, you know, I really like science, so that's good for me. Um, and so I really wanted to combine physics and chemistry. And the New York Academy of Sciences used to have this program where they would take uh, high school students and put them in labs. Um, I mean, not as, not as test subjects, but
0: as <laughs> lab
1: assistants. Yeah,
0: yeah. free labor. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. During
1: the summer. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, my summer job, um, between, uh, junior year and senior year of high school was working at, uh, city college in New York in a Mm -hmm. physics lab. And, you know, I really like had such an amazing experience. I, I really did not like school work very much, but Mm -hmm. when I discovered that I really liked what research and like looking, you know, working in a lab day to day, I was like, Oh, this is fun. Um, And it was actually the program coordinator who had placed me in that lab who was like, oh, you know, you talk a lot about like combining physics and chemistry. Have you ever thought about astronomy? And so that was actually how I was sort of introduced to the idea that one could be a professional astronomer. So it was really like right before I kind of started college applications. And um, I am different than a lot of like my astronomy peers and that like a lot of people seem to have like grown up somewhere where you can like see stars or like had a backyard telescope. And, you know, I, like any kid, I thought space was cool, but I didn't realize that it could be a job until like pretty late in the game. Um, but then once I did, I was like totally sold.
0: (laughs) Who did you have role models or people that you could look, uh, look to as I want to be like this person or, or people who mentored you and kind of took you under their wing?
1: Um, yeah, I actually have really benefited in my um, life and career from having excellent mentors. Um, one of the the things that I think was very significant to me in retrospect was that uh, my that research position that I, I had as a high school student was in the lab of a woman named Dr. Miriam Sarachik, who is a solid state physicist, um, which means that she works on things like semiconductors uh, and I think it was a very significant thing for me, um, to have such a like great role model when I was, uh, when I was growing up. Um, I also, you know, uh, I think if you are not a man and interested in physics, people like immediately are like, here is a, a million things about Marie Curie. <laughs>
0: Right, Um, right. (laughs) (laughs) Famous lady scientist.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And so, you know, I think uh, it was important to me to have, you know, real life role models. Um, And also, I just had great mentors uh, when I was in undergrad. You know, I, I really was very fortunate to go. Uh, I went to Johns Hopkins um, and majored in physics, and I was very fortunate to start working um, pretty early on doing research as my work study in college. And I worked on a team that was at Hopkins uh, for the advanced camera for surveys, which was the um, camera that was installed on the Hubble Space Telescope oh, cool. in uh, 2002. So my job was testing the detectors or analyzing the test data from the detectors for the advanced camera for surveys. And then I got to go like, see it be launched um, for the, the Hubble servicing mission. So I got to like, go to Kennedy space flight center and like see the space shuttle launch, which was unbelievable, (laughs) like an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and, but I, you know, I really had wonderful mentors, um, that were there, uh, and I had excellent mentors through grad school as well, and I, you know, I can't, I can't under, uh, underemphasize like how important it was to have people that I worked with who were you know so encouraging um, and supportive of me as like a young scientist.
0: Did you ever want to be an astronaut, or and do you still want to go into space?
1: You know, if you were an astronomer, people always ask you if you want to be an astronaut. And I will just say that, like, if you are a modern astronomer who watched the Challenger explode as a child in school, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I I only realized this actually a few years ago, ironically, that... Um, I have never really like had a super strong drive to be an astronaut or to go to space myself. And then I was like, oh yeah, because I watched the space shuttle blow up on television. I was like, thanks, I'm good. I can study it from here. (laughs) Um, You know, I think if if somebody were to be like tomorrow, like, hey, uh, you know, get in loser, we're going to space, I would probably... (laughs) I would probably go. Um, but it's not a huge drive for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually really like planet earth. Um, and really am very grateful for all the ways in which it supports my life. And so I think it might be fun to go to space, but also I really like it here.
0: (laughs) You mentioned, you know, Elon Musk and Bezos, and obviously we're, we're in the midst of this period now where, you know, billionaires are sending themselves and their friends and other people as well into space and creating what you know. I think they hope will be a kind of a commercial venture where you know maybe ordinary people or people without the resources to buy the big expensive tickets can go into space. But what do you what do you think about that? I mean, is it, is this a generally positive development? I mean, or do you think it's not very serious? What are your, what are your thoughts on the whole private space exploration as it's you know and separate too from the fact that. You know, corporations have been, you know, launching satellites for decades and there's a whole history of privatization in space. But really, you know, the, the the things that we're seeing now of, you know, people shooting up in rockets and sometimes coming right back down, sometimes staying up for a few days.
1: Yeah, I think um, I feel like I'm less interested in the actual physical act of space tourism itself than I am in its narrative function. So, you know, if you look at like the things that extremely wealthy people spend their money on, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. If if you want to spend a lot of money to go into orbit and come back down again, knock yourself out, you know, like people have been doing (laughs) things like climbing Everest, uh, you know, and, and doing all kinds of kind of um, adventure tourism Uh, you know, I would point out to often to detrimental impact um, on earth for long, long periods of time. So, you know, I think that uh, for that to exist, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but like rich people going to rich people. However, I do think that there is this narrative around, you know, the Branson and Bezos of the world going into space, that it is somehow opening up space to be accessible to more people, and I don't really think that that is what it is doing. Um, I think it, you know, it still paints a picture in which uh, the extremely wealthy become the gatekeepers of space, and even if the people who are going to space themselves are extremely deserving, you know, like uh, Cyan Proctor, for example, um, who was the the pilot of the SpaceX Inspiration Four mission. Um, you know, Dr. Proctor, like, is an extremely accomplished scientist herself and is, you know, has been a finalist for uh, being an astronaut and um, is exceptionally qualified to serve in the role that that she served in. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, like, it's still this uh, sort of um, gatekeeping situation where you have the uh the whim of extremely wealthy people being the arbiter of who gets to go into space so i don't actually think that you know somebody like i i saw a headline go by in the last week that it was like pete davidson no longer going to space like pete davidson going to space or not is not actually changing things (laughs) (laughs) for like who space is accessible for
0: right 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 and
1: and so I think that uh, the the narrative function of a lot of space tourism is kind of trickle down economics, in mm. that it posits that well, very wealthy people are going to do this first, and then that's going to create an environment in which you know you ordinary person are going to be able to do this as well. And you know, uh, there there have even been times, for example, when Elon Musk in the past has said things like you know, oh, it'll eventually be so affordable. It'll be $200,000 to go to space. And, you know, not, not everybody has that, but they'll, they'll, for example, sell their home and then use that to like go live on Mars. And it's like, okay, well, let's break that down. Um, <laughs> so first of all, not everyone's a homeowner. People who are homeowners don't all have homes that are worth $200,000. And like, what's the long-term plan there? You sell all your earthly possessions and then Elon Musk is in charge of your survival. That doesn't really seem like a great (laughs) plan (laughs) to me. Are you going? Yeah, exactly. Are you going to like work that off? So now you're an indentured Indentured servant. servant. Yeah. um, So there's, there's all kinds of ways in which you like sort of pick apart that narrative and, you know, it's, it's, bankrupt on the inside
0: is there a better answer to it i mean i i mean may, i'm just spitballing this and maybe it's not even practical but you know obviously I mean, nasa and the man's you know here you know sending human beings into space it's not really doing such a robust job of that i guess anymore i mean we you know we used to hitch flights with the russians i guess we're probably not going to be doing that anytime soon obviously the space shuttle program has suspended but you know i don't know i mean i'm just imagining like you know NASA, like build a space bus and like take kids on field trips. And and again, it's a highly dangerous pursuit. I don't want to minimize that. <laughs> but I do wonder if, if there's a way to kind of, you know, I don't know if this is the right word, but like to democratize that function and like whether or not there's a role for, you know, maybe even government or policymakers stepping in here and saying, look, <clears throat> private exploration of space is great, but we don't want this experience to become the domain of, you know, you know a rarefied strata of tourists. We want to make it more open to people. And, and I don't know. I mean, do you, I mean, there's obviously wonderful ways to encourage young people and people of all stripes to go explore the cosmos. They can come to the planetarium where you work in Chicago. But is there a role for, for NASA coming in and trying to just get more ordinary people into space, do you think?
1: Well, first of all, I'd love to see the permission slip that you would have to sign <laughs> to put your kid on the space bus.
0: <laughs> Child may not come back. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, again, this is one of the places where um, the, uh, the intersection of space and, like, medical ethics and, like, cost and benefit, um, you know, and potential risk all sort of intersect is, you know, when you look at, uh, for example, informed consent and like medical ethics and what medical ethics has to say about human beings going into space, generally speaking, um, the benefits of sending humans into space in order to make it um, sort of a, a reasonable risk to take have to outweigh the potential risks, which include not only, you know, like obvious bad things like dying in space, (laughs) but also, you know, potential deleterious effects on the human body that happen from spending time in space, um, you know, changes to your vision or your bone density that are kind of regular things that um, astronauts uh, who spend time in space experience. So you have to ask yourself, like, what actually is the benefit of a human being, whether they're a school child or not? Physically going into space versus the extreme expense of sending people into space. And the expense is both financial and also like space launches emit carbon. <laughs> there's like there's also like an environmental impact to making launching things into space a more regular part of what we do. Um, so you kind of have to look at this like multi-factored question of like what is the actual impact? Um, you know, people have been inspired to be curious and explore space in a variety of ways that don't have anything to do with physically going there um, for millennia uh, of human existence. Um, yeah. and you know i I would be hard pressed to say that like just sending more people physically into space is something that is um so important that it outweighs the risks and the potential negative impacts, um, to, you know, our own planet as well. Uh, so, you know, I do think that there, um, there are ways to make space more accessible. You know, uh, earlier we talked about militarization in space and how, um, there's this intimate tie with like astronauts in the early part of the human space, uh, program, being, you know, drawn from like fighter pilots and having these military qualifications. And that has loosened up in, um, you know, in more modern history. But for example, there's still a a very um, confined idea about like who is capable of going to space. And there are signs that that's that's broadening up a little bit. So the European Space Agency, for example, um, is running a pilot para astronaut program where they are looking at uh, the potential for disabled people going into space. Wow. Um, the definition of disabled people in that call is also extremely uh, narrow as well. Um, but you know, when we think about who is capable of going to space, it often reflects are ideas about kind of, you know, what a what a spacefarer looks like, which are often informed by the biases that are present in our society. So, you know, the typical astronaut is like white and male, um, you know, able-bodied and not just able-bodied, but like particularly athletic, et cetera. But, you know, there's been many, many scholars of um, disability and technology. For example, uh, Ashley Shue, who talks about the fact that like space disables all of us, right? Yeah. Um, the kinds of medical interventions that are necessary for astronauts living and working in space are things that people here on Earth who have disabilities and have to, for example, take medications, do particular kinds of exercises to like offset um, whatever happens to be happening in their bodies. Like those are things that uh, you know disabled people are fluent in that are actually not the natural language of somebody that doesn't face any of those uh, things here on earth. And so, you know, a lot of times, uh, our ideas about who is an astronaut reflect just sort of uh, our ideas about like, who is more worthy on this planet. And there are many, many ways in which we could be broadening (laughs) who we think about of as worthy and deserving of, you know, not just, um, the ability to go to space, but like the ability to thrive on earth. So there's, there's plenty of space, I think, to open up our ideas about like, who can go to space and also to make it possible for more people to go to space. For example, by making space science and STEM education more uh, accessible for people who have been historically excluded. So, you know, many people of color, um, people with disabilities, like all of, these groups that face bias in other places in our society also have experienced exclusion from STEM fields um, and are, are actively driven out of STEM fields in many cases. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Um, most of it happens here on this planet.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as you we were talking, I was just thinking it's, you know, we, we have these presumptions exactly about what a space explorer or spacefarer looks like. And I thought I would love to talk to somebody who's gone into space who is visually impaired or who can't see. I would Because lo- we always think of space as being the big experience of it, as looking back at the planet and what you see. I would love to know what it would be like to talk, to talk to a blind person who's traveled in space and how they sensed that and interpreted an obviously otherworldly kind of experience. And and we and it just never occurred to me that, like, why aren't we seeking out people who have different sensory um, abilities and, and ways that they relate to the world to just get a broader sense of what's it like to be a human being floating around out there and and how we kind of we understand the experience narrowly if we're only picking a narrow group of people to go do it and then come back and talk about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, it, your example of blindness I think is particularly interesting because eyesight is one of the things that experience uh, that astronauts experience, um, negative health effects from, right? Like Mm, the changes in pressure in the eyeball, um, the fact that uh, astronauts tell you that when they sleep and their eyes are closed, they still see little sparks occasionally. And that's from uh, high energy radiation impacting their retina wow. through, <laughs> through their closed eyes. Um, so we know that eyesight is potentially something that would be affected by spending long periods of time in space. And furthermore, um, so I am in a movie that just came out uh a, couple of weeks ago, um, by Rudolph and Herzog, um, so narrated by Werner Herzog called last exit space. Oh, wow. That, um, is all about these ideas of like going to space. And, uh, my colleague Taylor Genovese is in there, um, talking about how, you know, if you go live on Mars, the chances are you're going to be underground. And so this idea that you're going to like go and like look out at the surface is, Maybe something you'd get to do occasionally, but the surface of Mars is extremely impacted by radiation. <laughs> it would be quite quite uh dangerous. so you know we we have these ideas that like astronauts are just going to go out there and like look out the window the whole time. Um, <laughs> but in fact, you might you might not actually be looking at a particularly nice view <laughs> right um, for really most of the time that you spend in space.
0: Right. Um, as, we're, as we're wrapping up here, I want to ask you one com- question that's kind of tied to current events and uh, something I've been covering a lot in my work as a journalist, too, in, in, with the war in Ukraine. And, you know, Russia has played historically a very big role in space exploration. Obviously, they had a, a manned space uh, program like we did, the space race propelled technological uh, innovations. Uh, I, I would note that the Soviet Union put a woman into space long before the United States ever put a woman into space, uh, and, 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 and they held many important records. And of course, our astronauts um, have hitched rides on Soyuz rockets and on other spacecraft as well. What's going to happen? now to russia's role do you think in, in the international or just even its own exploration of space while where this country is now becoming just isolated economically by the world because of you know its its leaders decision to to invade another country what does the role for russia look like do you think in exploring space now
1: You know, I think that certainly there are aspects of earthbound cooperation that are going to be impacted um, by the relationship between the United States and Russia specifically. Um, And you mentioned, for example, people going into space, um, you know, has long relied on since the discontinuation of the shuttle program. Our ability to send human beings up to the International Space Station, for example, has relied on cooperation with Russia and being able to um, launch from Russia. So uh, there are certainly some very straightforward ways in which um, you know, our uh, deteriorating uh, relationship with Russia is going to be impacted. However, I will also point out that the International Space Station um, is a great example of the ways in which space has been a domain of peaceful international cooperation. And, you know, the, the head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, Rogozan loves to go on Twitter and rant about, you know, like detaching the Russian module from the International Space Station and, and says all of these like ridiculous inflammatory things about, what is going to happen in space. But honestly, like the international space station relies on international cooperation and has done so through many, many tense times in the past. Um, And, you know, like the (laughs) the cosmonauts are not going to detach the Russian module of the space station. You know, like why would they do that uh, when they are up there and, you know, like they're not going to deorbit the thing that they're in. Um, and you know, you also have things that have happened in the last week, like the most recent, uh, Russian cosmonauts arriving in these bright yellow spacesuits with Mm. blue trim, um, Mm. which, you know, they've, they've said like, Oh, you know, like we just had a backlog of yellow cloth. Right. And of course, um, we don't know why that happened. Um, but it, you know, sure would be a, a heck of a coincidence um, for that to have been uh, the, the colorway that they chose for their mission's particular um, uniform at this time. So, I, you know, I think that, that the International Space Station shows us that, like, things in space are likely to sort of continue um, the way that they have been, at least as far as places like the International Space Station. But certainly, you know, the things that happen on the ground absolutely do impact our ability to cooperate in space. And so I think, um, you know, the the cooperation that we've had, not just, you know, sending humans to space, but also like the presence of, you know, uh, Russian personnel at international space launch facilities, we're likely to see that be discontinued for a while. Um, You know, Russia is a a partner in a number of upcoming missions, um, not just, you know, like, uh, the U.S.'s space program, but also like the European space program, et cetera. So I think there will be disruptions that ripple ripple through, um, just not anything nearly as inflammatory as uh, the Russian space chief likes <laughs> 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 to make it sound on Twitter.
0: <laughs> that, that's good to hear. I'm glad for that. Um, so our, very, our tradition is on the very last question on chatter. Uh, I reach into, I have here the chatter box, which contains Ooh. a series of pre-written questions, which I'm going to pull one oh at random. And ask you that question. So here we go.
1: How exciting. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So most of our, I, I I may adapt this one a little bit because many of our guests who come on are <clears throat> work in the national security field and you work in fields obviously that are adjacent to it. Um, so you can take this question literally or you can change it. Uh, the question is, tell us your favorite or least uh, favorite spy movie or political thriller or TV show. If you want to change that to space, you also can. But if you do have a favorite or least favorite uh, in the category of spy, political thriller, or space or sci-fi, what is it?
1: This is a very easy one for me because I just rewatched this movie and I love it. Wag the Dog. Oh, Uh,
0: such a good movie
1: such a good movie. I so the reason that I recently rewatched Wag the Dog is that I watched Don't Look Up. Um Don't Look Up is this, you know, yeah. movie that just came out in the last year about this impending asteroid impact and it is this sort of political farce about what would happen if there was this direct threat to, you know, human existence on Earth and all of the like political machinations. There's like a, you know, a character that is an amalgam of like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and all of these people mashed into one person, um, it, uh, it's generally accepted that it's like an allegory for climate change. You yeah. know, there's a very obvious disaster that is unfolding that might end us all. And you know nobody seems to be able to do anything about it that isn't completely self-serving, um, no matter how loudly the scientists yell, right? And I really thought that that movie's best previous analogy was Wag the Dog,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which, uh, you know, for listeners who haven't watched it, is this amazing movie from the late 90s uh, that is about a presidential scandal that unfolds and the, uh, the president engages the help of a bunch of um, Hollywood producers and a crew to create a diversion. And so they make a fake war. Um, and they, you know, it's all filmed on a soundstage and, uh, there's wonderful, wonderful performances from Dustin Hoffman, um, and Anne Heche is in it and, uh, Robert De Niro as this group of people that are trying to detract from this presidential scandal. And at the time it was very much in the news because it just so happened that it, uh, the, the war, I think, in Wag the Dog was maybe in Albania. It's Albania. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, it happened to coincide temporally with a bunch of extremely similar real things that were happening in politics at the time. Um, but it it really holds up now. It is like a an absolutely ridiculous... Um, over the top political farce. I know you said it's political thriller, but I think that counts.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think we'll take it. You're making me remember that. I love that movie so much too, and I, I I should go back and watch that because it does feel like it would probably hold up really well. Uh, and, and, and Dustin Hoffman's is, performance in it is just hilarious.
1: Yeah, um, and you know it's a uh, it's funny because his last or close to close to last line in the movie, um, and this won't give anything away, um, which really made me think of uh, Don't look, look Up was him shrugging and saying, well, you can't save the world. All you can do is try.
0: Well, well on that hopeful note, which we, I think we need right <laughs> now, um, uh, Lucy and Walkowitz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking. It's such a fascinating intersection of worlds of many kinds that you're working on and working at. And, uh, and thank you because you're making a really valuable contribution and getting people to think bigger and think uh, differently than they ordinarily might. So thanks for coming on and talking to us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, really a great time.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at ThatWasChatter.